Hey, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on the sixth episode of Tree Tub. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton going on in the interoperability right now, and I'm stoked to get your perspective on a few topics in the space. I'd like to start off with the evolution of Commonwealth and its membership. First off, how are things going just in general? And then have you seen any evolution in the membership of Commonwealth over the last few years? Any trends in particular organizations joining that had not typically? Yeah, it's probably no surprise that we started out, if you look at our history, very, I'll say top heavy as a term. So large scale EHR vendors, large market share, large amount of install base. And over time, we've gotten to smaller market share entities, right? It really, you know, no fault of the smaller guys here, but the bigger vendors arrived first for probably many reasons. Got more feedback from customers, a larger end, more room in their development roadmap to add this stuff and more interest in looking at the regulatory landscape and being able to help guide that. So what we've seen is going down market more. So smaller each, excuse me going down market more to smaller EHRs with a smaller install base, but also seeing other types of non-EHR, non-electronic health record, I'll try and avoid acronyms, health information technology, vendors, other types of products that are a little bit outside of the norm that we saw in Commonwealth. Overall, I think it's going very well. I do think that digital health kind of is probably not quite our sweet spot yet, the smaller apps on mobile phones and may actually be more appropriate at Health Gorilla and other things that are more API driven. But we are seeing more and more of them showing up and asking a lot of questions now too. That's great. That's great. Is there any any particular contingency of the healthcare ecosystem that you've seen joining at a higher clip than others over the past couple of years once you get past the large EHRs and then the smaller organizations downstream? Yeah, the one I, I want to reverse the question a little bit. The one that surprised me, I have not seen because we've seen the smaller EHR showing up. We haven't seen like the specialty EHRs, like the specific ology stuff. Okay. So I feel like we're missing that. There's dermatology and ophthalmology. There's these niche products that sometimes are bolted behind large scale EHRs for practice management, and other things, but really are their own record. I'm not quite sure where those guys are right now. And we talk to them, and part of it is less of a need or obvious things that they can do from an interop perspective because they're so specialized they often don't even look at some of the normal data that we exchange right because hospital stuff is episodic primary care by the time it gets a specialist that stuff is not as valuable because they're going to rework a lot of stuff specific to the way that specialty thinks of things but uh, it is surprising how few of those if you really look across commonwealth care quality all the implementers there and the like, it really is a, there it is a miss there. Yeah, that's interesting. And an answer I didn't expect. I wonder if it, I wonder if it has to do from a, has to do with education and them not understanding the full value of a patient's consolidated medical record, or if it really comes down to use case and they, the, there's not a high enough ROI on, on uh, investing in this type of data accessing. Take ophthalmology, for example. I had to see an ophthalmologist for some specialty work with my retina the data they need is very different than the data we all share. So I think it's partially just not a matching. We need to do more matchmaking in the two ophthalmology products or the two dermatologists. Always needs, you need two entrants. And sometimes you get scale from one vendor that has enough customers that they want to exchange with each other through a commonwealth care quality, right? And so they say, we'll hook up just to get our own customers have access to stuff through a framework. And by accident or by intent, they also have access to the rest of the data that's already being exchanged. 
But I do think there, there's a data set issue. There's a workflow thing. It is very unique. Like I found a retinal scan output. I have no idea what format that's in. It's not DICOM. It's like quasi-visible light in a semi-JPEG shareable, but not quite. It is rendered by the product from the device that has this strange scan. So you, when you get to the edge, you do realize, hey, there, there are some differences and USCDI doesn't cover all this stuff. And maybe they just felt left out a little bit, but I am talking to more and more of them and trying to convince them to be amongst the willing so we can get this started. It just, you just got to get going and then you get the scale. Commonwealth started 13, 2013, so 10 years ago. Yeah, that first year was a dozen sites and the second year was a couple hundred. That was a couple of thousand, it was a couple 10,000 pretty quick, the 30,000 where we are today. So the first, every journey begins with a step, right? It's the same thing with a network effect. You got to get two willing participants to start exchanging. And then it does start to balloon out of benefit that is perceived and explained to their peers. A lot of it comes from word of mouth of talking to the other specialists that they work with and say, hey, by the way, we're doing X now. You might want to look into it. Fascinating. Because we're focusing on Commonwealth membership and kind of spoke about EHRs, I'm going to jump around my questions a bit. I'm wondering if you were advising an EHR or a virtual care startup, how would you suggest they think about data access? Would you advise the individual pipe building into other data sources, or at this point is licensing an API that acts as an intermediary, the route that you would advise startups take? So my background, product management, as well as I'm a CIO that kind of did CTO work as well. I think like a product person first, like what is, how would I want to design this into the product? So in many respects, it's a standard buy versus build decision. And yeah, with the third one being partner, right? Buy, build, partner, where you're doing a little bit of both. So <clears throat> Commonwealth, I often describe as almost vanilla brute force interrupt, right? If you have an interrupt mindset within your product and just need the edge protocols to communicate with others that have had the same space, that you know they have deduplication, normalization, extraction tools, visualization, GUI. You already have your mindset that you need to build that stuff into your product and you're just looking for an edge that has scale, perfect. If you're looking for SDOH data today, right? Kamala isn't a data source for that. There might be SDOH data within the framework and network, but that you might need to rent until the entire ecosystem is already sharing their own SDOH data to the point where you don't need a data source. So you can do a little bit of both. And I, I think there's a fair amount of starter, what you're gonna to do today versus what you're gonna do five years from now is often very different, right? It could be an API license for a certain subset. <clears throat> and as you build expertise and the data sets become more readily available for in quotes free, because it's already exchanged everywhere, do it that way. <clears throat> and likely by that point, there's some other data set that's not available from that. From So I think there's a constant new data coming in, a build versus buy decision, and then what to do. And most likely over time, the data will be incorporated in enough records that you're going to get it from normal exchange, but constantly look for what's the next thing I need to integrate. And I look towards APIs to do that versus building it. Makes a lot of sense. From a scalability perspective and looking through the CIO, CTO lens, do you see one as a more scalable option than the other? They're both scalable. Uh, to me, a lot of it has to do with how do you want to get that scale? Take, let's go back five years. And when you go back 20 years, you're making a question as to, are I gonna, am I going to adopt email? That was the late 90s. And there are many corporate 
boards that were making a decision of whether we're going to enter email. And that's a ridiculous question to ask right now, right? Now you would ask, am I going to do exchange, Google? Or... Interestingly, you're not even asking the question of on-prem versus cloud. You're probably already cloud 90 some odd percent of corporate America starting something right now is picking a cloud service for email, not looking at a server to install that has some sort of a mail protocol in the back end, exchange server and the like. So we've shifted our mindset. So some scale comes from picking a good cloud vendor that's elastic and allows you to build within that. But there's scale of breadth that's a little bit difficult to do there, right? So I think it depends on the scale you're looking for. Transactional scale, most tech stacks out there could probably handle that themselves if they really try. And they could do it to a third party. They can think, oh, I'm not going to do a colo thing anymore. I'm going to use cloud services. And the reality is some of them also realized that elasticity is expensive. It's, ex it's important that you build your technology such that it doesn't have to be elastic, right? You want it to be smart, build smart, not stupid. Don't let the elasticity make up for bad technology development. And in some cases, the API companies that are working with this data already have thought about both parts of that scale, right? How does my make my software efficient and good APIs, right? It's two systems that do very different functions or but have a similar niche in between. You want both sides to be efficient at that transaction. It's quick answer, quick response. Yeah. And if the other side is make it very fast to build that and you're going to be in trouble getting there, I would rent it. The common one I think of is database technologies. AI is a great example. In some respects, a big MPI is a large database, a master patient index, a thing that tracks one person and where all their stuff is and links all these patient records together. And you can have Oracle, you got SQL, you can have Go, MongoDB. Okay, fine, pick a technology. But the reality is someone has to build the algorithm that knows to take a universe of 180 million potential matches, quickly find one, match it and persist it and cache it going forward. And that's not just getting a faster database with faster spindles and SSDs and elasticity. It also requires algorithms and technology. And if you don't have that, I'd recommend you rent it or buy it from someone else because it's probably not something you want to start from scratch. Definitely more of a buy versus build scenario. Yeah, I mean, I had the pleasure of interviewing with some of the big tech firms in product management. And I remember getting a whiteboard question as a VP product management type thing of, design X in front of an engineer. And I looked at some of them and said, I don't want to at the interview to stop now. Because I was like, this is your expertise. If you don't have the expertise, my job as a product manager is to figure out how to augment it either through other staff in the organization and look through other departments or find partners. I'm not necessarily going to develop. I'm expecting you are a better IT computer science trained person than I am. <laughs> and my job is to help find how to fill those gaps and make sure we can have a product at the end of the day. And don't get me wrong. Some of those companies do not like that answer. They expect you to actually be able to develop it just as well as an engineer can. You just moved from engineering over to product management. I just see product management as a, as a specialized discipline that's supposed to be in between that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I fundamentally agree. All right. With these podcasts, it's not often that I specifically talk about Health Gorilla. I will reference this because we are about to publish a state of interop 2023 survey. Our team did a lot of work at the tail end of 2022, and the results are going to be exciting to release. That'll be taking place next. One piece of data we found is that 13% of hospital systems will only share the minimum amount of data necessary to comply with the regu regulatory demands. And my question to you is, what? where's the apprehension coming from? Why are these organizations still gun-shy to 
contribute more than the bare minimum. Without challenging the question too much, I'm going to challenge it a little bit, right? First of all, this is like a half glass, half full, glass, half empty question, right? So 13% is actually pretty low. If I went back to the 10 years ago, the answer would be, I don't know what the minimum is, right? The answer is completely different now in terms of I'm only sharing the minimum. What's significant that's changed is the minimum is different depending on where, what the CIO thinks the minimum is. In some cases, that minimum is much higher than I think we give people credit for. So if you're looking at the regulatory framework, national framework, and looking at information blocking, Cures Act, and the like, your idea of the minimum might be USCDI V1 and potentially V2, because you're looking at the patient access stuff and saying, since I have that content available and shareable, I'm sharing it in every form I can. That's a pretty high bar of minimum data versus you're saying, hey, that applies to this patient access fire API, but doesn't apply to everything else. I'm only going to share the minimum there differently. So you almost want to like ask that second tier question of, do you understand the question and what is your definition minimum, which also changes by state. That being said, I'm not that surprised that some people would only do the minimum, even if they did understand that question, because it is hard to fix. Many of, we were, I mentioned we were top heavy early in the interview that Commonwealth started with the big EHR vendors. What's interesting is they're actually the most malleable in the way the documents and fire standards come out of their products. There's lots of dials and switches to make this work. And sometimes the best thing you can do at first, especially the newest adopters, is just take the default stuff, which may indeed be the minimum. Then you work with your community and find out your community is mad at you for doing the minimum and what their expectation is somewhere higher. And once you start interacting with your community and people talk about healthcare being local, and I still fundamentally believe that's true. We just as Commonwealth think that sometimes local is the entire country. Sometimes it is really just the guy down the street and there's a little bit of both in between. But when you see local communities come together and start saying, here's what I'm expecting for you, here's what I can give, those dials and switches start getting used, not because they didn't know like that they could use them, they didn't know what people wanted. And then that bar starts raising. And I saw a great example in Texas where it was the biggest EHR vendors you can find, the big ones, and both sides were <clears throat> unaware about how the other side worked. And then what you found out <laughs> in the call is both sides were a little bit unaware of how their own stuff worked and how to do style sheets. And there's is more to it. To, interoperability isn't just moving large blocks of data. It's also semantic interoperability is that data comes in and you can read it and process it and do things with it. And that's still harder than we care to admit. So when you do the full data set, you're gonna get a lot of questions and concerns. If you do the minimum, it's likely to work. And then you start ratcheting up as your community wants more stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think the it sounds like it's pretty common for you to see new participants elevate what they're willing to share based off the Commonwealth community's feedback. I would say it's a, it's a I wouldn't say we get direct. Sometimes we do. We have a de deployment utilization committee, for example, that talks about member to member stuff. Because those dials and switches, a lot of it is end user to end user, sometimes facilitated through Commonwealth, sometimes facilitated because Commonwealth exists. The fact that the data moves and that it's so pervasive now, right? We talk about about 80% of the data of the country being available through a combination of Commonwealth, <clears throat> Care Quality, Health Exchange, like the big exchanges and all the implementers thereafter, some of which will be likely backbone providers as QNs on, in the Tefka world. That's a lot of data. The reality is that the 20% left is actually a lot of sites. I caution people to say that we have 80% of the sites hooked up. No, there is a fair amount of small practices that have a smaller amount of data. So we say very carefully, 80% of the data is likely available. We never said that 
you know, Dr. Smith's practice in the rural area of North Dakota using a custom EHR that him and his friend built is available. That's not necessarily true. And we got to be careful about that because there is a health equity issue with spottier access to information for the provider, not just for the patient, because they're not as digital as we want them to be. But it's growing. And that feedback comes both through Commonwealth, through our committees, but also through blocking and tackling that happens in the field. The more that people adopt stuff, the more they ask their neighbor, can you do this a better way? And more is happening there than it's probably happening at our level at this point, which is great, right? Because the data is moving and now everybody's talking to each other and saying, how do I make your data better? Hey, and by the way, do you know that Dr. Smith isn't on this thing? How do we help him? And a lot of time it's, let's help Dr. Smith talk to his vendor about how to do that build by decision to decide is it Comwell, is it another implementer through Care Quality Health Gorilla or others to help them get there, but don't just sit there because you're hurting your provider's ability to move forward into really 21st century medicine. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. One other question relating to the survey we're gonna be releasing. We found that 80% of EHR respondents wanna make it easier for providers to get complete clinical records from third parties. From your perspective, how would you advise these EHRs wanting to integrate data from the exchanges and what should they expect along their journey? Yeah, I think what's changed, this has changed in the last five years, and really a market change in the last two years, is I'm more apologetic about there being too much data and too little now, right? Mm -hmm. So you are actually very likely to be getting a quote unquote complete record that you may not be able to decipher as being complete. I do think within our, the documents, there is still too much variability. And if you talk to standards people, the, actually, it's a funny example. In my university days, we had a lot of committees at the university, and I was part of council that managed funding for student organizations and groups. I was the chair of that council. But in the university itself, there was also these councils and committees. And it got so ridiculous that we had to have this conversation about how do we bring this down to a more manageable size? And the unfortunate answer was a committee on committees, which is like an ironic response to the growth of committees is to create another one to try and manage committees. Right. And we've done that in standards, right? We've had a standard and a second competing standard. And sometimes we build like a triangle of a third standard that tries to harmonize the two that are below it into a new standard. And then there's a fight about whether it supersedes it. We've done this more than we should. And it's caused some problems and confusion. And interestingly, I'll give you an example. Some people are trying to do the right thing because they recognize a workflow problem and it winds up causing a bad downstream problem. I worked with an HIE back in the day and I was at an HIE, but this was one that was partnered that we were exchanging data with. And they had taken all the lab results and formatted an ASCII-based table. So a character-based table with pipe delimiters to separate columns and the like, and put it into a note section of the CCDA. Sounds good because no one had, this is going back like eight years now, there weren't many products that were extracting discrete data from the CCDA and they wanted to be available for the provider without the EHR necessarily having to be fixed to render this stuff. Unfortunately, what they did is they didn't leave it in the original field. They moved it from the lab fields over into this other one that was human readable. So when the EHR is caught up and now they could read these fields, the data wasn't there. So it took nine months to then reverse that leave it in, go through a committee process to put it both in the lab sections it to be in. So HL7v2 comes in, filing it into where the CDA should have it as discrete data with a proper coding set attached to it, and also remain it in the clinical notes that they were creating. 
it was nine months to reverse what seems like a stupid mistake now. If you're thinking semantic interoperability, why would you take it away from the data field it's supposed to be in and put it in another? Seems like a boneheaded move. This happens more than we care to admit because there's things change over time. We do a workflow thing for our neighbor or for ourselves, and we didn't realize that we broke something else. Getting to USCDI, I think was a big leap. Getting to V2 and to V3, there is some concern that's, get, that's getting voluminous now. And it's our job as vendors, actually, I guess I'm not really a vendor, I'm the pipes in between vendors, but I try and coach them to know what's coming next and what can they can extract. It's getting better, but the deluge of data and the duplication that's in there is still a bit of a, every provider I've ever seen collects my allergies, meds, procedures, and diagnoses that I can present to them. They store them. They also get it from the outside for someone else. They're duplicating their own stuff. I actually saw an HIE, and HIEs are unique in causing these problems, I guess, if you listen to my stories, that was sending a CDA out. The other one was accepting it, absorbing it. And when the first one requested something back from the other one, they were getting their own data back. They were storing it too. So as long as the patient kept going back and forth into these HIE regions, they had an infinite storage problem that would never stop. And they had to talk to each other and say, okay, who's going to stop this? Because we're going back and forth. It wasn't just duplicating. It was thousand folding because they did have a patient going back and forth to the two regions. It was nuts. Wild. So the scenario you outlined where, you know, where organizations think that they are potentially improving a process and potentially harming it more down the road. Is that a, what's the impetus for that reason? Is that a lack of communication? Is that a lack of an understanding of the downstream repercussions? What do you think that stems from? Um, very simply, everyone's not a futurist, right? So what's in front of you today feels like what's going to be there tomorrow, right? So you have your EHR, it's at version 11.2, whatever it is. And you're exchanging with someone else who is on their product on version 9.6. And so you have a local problem you're trying to fix and you fix it, not thinking that maybe 11.3 or 12.0 is going to do this a heck of a lot better if you didn't tinker with that. And it's hard as a provider, particularly when you get down to ambulatory products that don't have a, like a partnership relationship with their EHR, right? It's a purchase relationship and it's expected over time through cloud service and whatever to improve. But the likelihood of a three doc or one doc shop with an ambulatory EHR, knowing the three-year-out roadmap of their, EH, of their product space, not very likely. And it's no fault of their own. I don't look and see what's going into exchange every day to know how my calendar system is going to work better. You just see it when it comes. The difference is my calendar system, a relatively tight amount of data fields to work with. And healthcare has thousands, right? <laughs> so bad things can happen. And I'll give you another example. And this did happen. I met a cardiologist practice that, and I tell this in other, tell other speeches, but you may not have heard this that was showing zero entries for blood pressure measurements and all of their outbound EHR data, cardiology practice. Right? So if you think about it, that is the last practice on the planet you'd expect to not have blood pressure. Right. And so what they had done with their EHR is gotten the, they're very advanced. What they did is they got the instructions on how to customize the EHR because they like to measure left blood pressure and right blood pressure. You go to a, a cardiologist, which I have gone to, it's raise your right hand, right? Let, you know, for a couple 30 seconds, now put your arm down measure, wait two minutes, raise your left hand for 30 seconds, or put your arm down, measure that. And they'll do this multiple times, at least the first time they see you, because they, there is a difference in the right side and the left side in terms of blood pressure measurements. 
So they made their own fields. No one told them to map at least one of them or figure out some averaging technique with a new field to put it back in the place that everybody else expects it to be. So one day, like they're doing meaningful use, this is back in meaningful use days, and their scorecard when they were trying to get their check as a Medicare practice was showing zero over zero for blood pressure measurements. And that's impossible that they have never tried to do a blood pressure. And they're like, oh my God, what did we do? Now it wasn't a difficult fix. It was, they went to the vendor said, we did this thing as, oh, what you just gotta do is now map it back there so that we don't lose this, all's good with the world. But you don't know often until it's observed. The VA, for example, has been fantastic at this, right? The VA does have a team of people that regularly detail their primary exchangers, which may not be, it's not necessarily large hospital systems. It's my veteran has gone to you as a primary care provider. I can't seem to work with your data. Did you know that it was this much of a mess? Because you often don't know what your outbound stuff looks like until someone calls you out on it because you don't see it. Right. It's like this Zoom call right now. I don't, I may be a blurry mess to you on your side. I only see what I see, which is perfectly fine. And so that that's a that's the communication problem of asynchronous stuff. It's sent over, but you don't have a conversation about what you're getting, very different from what we'd have in a one-on-one conversation. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Interesting example for sure. So I want to pivot a little bit and speak about patience for a second. Listen to your Commonwealth TV interview from earlier. I guess it would have been last year, from last year. And one thing you said is that by 2030, you expect patients to have more access to their data, but you're not hopeful that they'll know what to do with it yet. <laughs> Can you explain what you mean by that and maybe provide some tips or tricks that patients, assuming we all have access to our full medical record, what could we do as patients to inform our own care? I don't want to accuse all providers of poorly recording clinical history, <clears throat> but some do. And so the data is useful for some things, but if you're trying to remember using the record to help you remember your clinical history and what happened, it's more difficult than it may seem. I'll give you a concrete example. This recently, my, one of my daughters had developed hives, like allergic reaction. We didn't know where it came from. And one of the things that EHR was supposed to fix was take-home notes, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Benadryl at this rate. The prednisone is going to be at this. And I recall even the consultation with this provider, them saying it will be in the notes, right? Don't, you don't need to take notes. You will be in there. Lo and behold, I got home and it, it wasn't in there. And nor was it on the prescription detailed on the prescription bottle. And that's a shame, <laughs> right? So even when they said they were going to do something, they didn't do it. Now, I don't think they meant to do it. They probably couldn't find out where to put it and didn't even know what field goes to me. It is very possible that they prescribed it with those instructions and have no idea that the document I got back was missing the notes that they think are visible to me. So I'm thinking when you go forward to 23rd, we're looking seven, seven years forward, and I'm trying to remember how I dealt with X. It is not, unfortunately, not unexpected that X wouldn't have been documented in a way that I can almost self-manage my care or be more educated to the next provider. And you know, that, that's just a shame, right? Because And it's not necessarily the data's fault, probably not even the provider's fault. It's a mix of all the things together because it's a very complex data set. I remember Farzad, he was the former director of the Office of National Coordinator going back a couple of years, who I'd worked with in New York City. And someone was asking about you know, this data exchange. Look, yeah, and comparisons to finance, right? We used to always compare things like ATMs, like ATMs have seven fields, 
right? The very, it's a QCIP, it's a number, it's a clearance, it's a transaction code. It's relatively simple. And then on the screen, you put up like a dummy CCDA. Let me show you what a healthcare record looks like. It's 120 pages. Here's all the fields in the structure. It's not unexpected that it'd be difficult to deal with that voluminous of a thing. That said, I do believe that FIRE is going to help that part, right? It's going to help with the ability for discrete data to be more interpretable by the other system. What I said in that comment that I'm not quite ready for yet to believe is that data in a patient portal is going to make me that much more informed that I know how to help my doctors take care of me. I hope I'm wrong. That's one of those ones that I predict that I hope I'm wrong. But there's also education. It took time for the average human that's well-educated, forget the average human that is not, to learn how to deal with their, fin their finances, right? It's very easy to get off the rails and get in trouble with credit card debt, all these things, because you're not monitoring correctly. It's not necessarily about spending too much. It's often not knowing what's going on in the back end and what's hurting you. And healthcare has a lot of things for people to take care of and to understand. And the reality is we are going to need providers to help coach us through that. I do not think we'll be self-directing ourselves based on the data. I do think we'll be self-helping ourselves talk better with providers though. Absolutely. Yeah. Like anything, it's going to take practice to be able to digest and create action off of medical record. And fortunately, maybe unfortunately, it typically takes an episode to put that practice into place. And you don't want to see too much of that in the health space. So it's, right. a it's a funky balance between getting people up to speed on how to use their records while also hoping that it's not due to reoccurring health episodes that are forcing them to do. Yeah. That. Take this hives example. Some people have chronic hives, right? It's just, a, I know people that said when they were younger, it usually goes away at some point. Like, oh yeah, I remember in my teenage years, I had this for 10 years where I had, and I did X, Y, and Z. Interestingly, most of the cure for that is symptom management, right? It's Benadryl or Claritin, Liratadine, if you want to go down the generic terms. It's all these antihistamine drugs, but they're all over the counter now. Most of them you can go get yourself. You can get calamine lotion, basic hydrocortisone. Where it ends is when you need to get five steroids. So usually prednisone or something to really hit it hard. But you could see where if someone has something recurring that they saw before, they might use the same cure before and self-medicate. Because I do, everybody does. I have a headache. What's the first thing you think of? So either I need more sleep, I'm dehydrated, or I start using these pills. It's hard for a patient to know when that is a chronic different issue and it's time to go seek professional help once they've gotten used to doing something. So I do think it is partially dangerous to think about this idea of what they call it, Dr. Google and the data reinforcing that. Providers do this. Providers will go through med school. By the time you get to your fourth year, you think you have 17 elements that you don't have because you're reading all this stuff. And you're like, I have all these problems. Not really. You're not an expert on that yet. But we got to be careful about too much reliance on the data on the patient side. That being said, our healthcare woes are probably not going to get fixed if we don't get at least better at in some respect. In terms of workforce development issues relative to how many doctors, nurses, clinicians we have out there to an aging population, to bend the quality cost curve and not bankrupt Medicare and each of us individually. Yeah, we are going to have to get better at some level of self-management. And I'm hopeful that sometimes after 2023, because I was just looking seven years is not that far away, that we have enough education to be able to use Dr. Google better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the best thing that the patient population could do is learn how to translate their medical records into 
preventative treatment at home, preventative everyday routines that can keep you out of the hospital and keep you healthy. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and move the trust. Providers are generally trusted. There's many of these things to talk about who the least trusted and it goes between insurance companies and Congress, right? They always get the top billing there. But on the other side, it's usually healthcare providers are usually one of the ones up against like a reverend or a religious leader. They're two of the most common high trust individuals in your life. And I, I think that trust needs to be maintained. And, re, and part of that is the patients interacting well with the providers. But I do think more providers need the ammo to question things. There's a fair amount of studies that go on like rich dad, poor dad, and other things that talk about how does a well-off person act versus a not well-off person when they're dealing with a person of authority that they trust. And health equity is about empowering everyone to ask good questions and not be shy because that person is supposed to be more educated, wealthier, higher, higher, whatever. We need to get the data to everybody so they can say, hold on a second. Like I, I need, I know you're pressed. I know every primary care visit is seven minutes and decreasing. I need 30 more seconds for you to explain something because I remember, and I can see it here last time we did X, why aren't we doing that again? Yep. Please explain to me. And then they go, oh, because this other thing and okay, great. Now at least I know, and I'm not confused and going home and potentially doing what I did before because I know to do it. And that's contraindicatory to things I was just told to do. We, you know, it's important that they have, they being us and everybody have access to that data so that we can ask those kinds of questions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I want to move on to non-traditional data types. Healthcare in particular, we're always looking to integrate new and impactful data sources. One, one example is last year we brought on social determinants of health data. Do you have one or two types of data that you believe could be very impactful to healthcare if readily available by both patients and providers? Yeah, I, I wish there was a way to get data on quality and educate people on the non-correlation in cost and quality. So we talk about bending quality cost curve. I my, my daughter broke her arm a little while ago and the immediate reaction by one of the mother that she was with at the time, because we <laughs> she was at a birthday party kind of thing. It's like, oh my God, your daughter did I think just broke her arm. What should I do? Should I take her into X or Y? And the X or Y she listed were large academic facilities and I was like, look, no, just go to the nearest hospital, right? It's a broken arm. This isn't a complex pediatric case. Almost any US emergency department can deal with a, what I'll call a generic broken arm. It wasn't through her skin or anything. Yeah, it was a decent break. It was the two bones of her forearm, but it's a normal thing. And we'll see an orthopedist next week. So there was this default belief that we got to go to this well-name recognized academic facility when you're probably going to an equal or better care going to the thing that's right around the corner from you. And a lot of that has to do with the marriage of seeing quality and cost. And those in healthcare in the know know this already, right? It's pretty well documented. What's interesting is even providers don't understand cost data. It's very obtuse. It's not transparent. It's very hard for you a provider to know when they prescribe something or they recommend a specialist, what's the cost of the patient and what's the cost to healthcare writ large versus the quality they're going to get from that. And are there better alternatives? We saw with drugs, we've seen generics, right? As a default, if you don't check the box saying brand required, that it automatically from a PBM perspective is going to hit the pharmacy as a generic. And that's great. But there's a lot of other stuff that is like that. And some of them are very costly. Which surgical center has better outcomes? Oh, it's not the one that's actually charging more. 
radiology exams, et cetera. And I'm not trying to say it's bent down to the lowest common denominator. It's to get away from, I have to pay more to get better care because a lot of times in the middle is perfectly great for everybody. And I think SDOH on the other side is for providers to understand more about patients and things that are not in the clinical record today that don't seem like obvious things. I think that's great as well. But on the patient side, if I was going to educate on anything first, if I had the chance to say, it's going to be easy, let's pick the one low-hanging fruit, that's the one. I do not think it's low-hanging fruit, though. I think it's a very complicated discussion because healthcare itself doesn't understand this. Ask a provider to explain an insurance plan, and usually they gloss over or get angry because they don't know. It's very interesting. I think that I think they're two great examples of data that could be that could make a real change. I want to be cognizant of your time, Paul. So I'm going to jam through these last few questions. Can't can't have this discussion and not talk about Tefka and QHINs, right? They're on the horizon. Wondering what you think the initial wave of QHINs, your, how the initial wave of QHINs are going to impact the healthcare industry this year. And if you anticipate any major changes and when, you know, when we should expect to see those. I think Tefka is, is critically important, right? I've talked about this in other settings that finally having a national framework, that we all agree, is the framework and we're going to go there. I will say I'm not that... I'm hopeful, but I'm not very confident that it's going to do a lot this year. I do think this is a build year, not a deploy year. I think there was, I remember hearing the RCE, the recognized coordinate entity, the thing that is approving QHINs, when they put out the application, or actually it's right before the application that we were talking about the cost to get to TEFCA level. And there was some surprise where a lot of companies come back, came back and said, well, it's going to cost about three to five million to build the rest of the technology to get there. But like, I, we just never expected that answer. I was like, I don't know why you didn't. Two million is not a lot of money when it comes to health, <clears throat> massive health tech improvements in technology. So I think a fair amount of QNs are waiting for other QNs to exist before they really invest in fixing all this stuff. You can build ahead, but what I'm the feeling I'm getting is everybody's going to build when there are others to start building with and testing because a lot of the rollout is iterative and working with other QHINs at the edge and potentially going back and changing the spec to match what really works, right? Because we have this large spec, it's a 20-page thing, and talked about all this stuff, it's very similar to care quality, but it adds some things. And I know in care quality, I know Health Gorilla went through the same thing as just as we did. You get there, you start working on the implementers, and you find out the things that aren't quite documented in that spec. And then you want to add them back in. And I think we're going to find those in Tefka. And so you're going to see if we ran really hard and stopped doing all the rest of the stuff we're doing six months, we're not going to run that hard because we are doing other stuff. Like you said, you're launching APIs for other data sets. There are still other product things you're doing, and you don't have infinite resources, and neither do we. That makes it nine to 12 months. That's just a reality. So You'll see some preliminary designated QHINs that start doing the start that real cycle, probably in let's say March. And then you'll see them start working in March and April and May, June, July, August, do some testing, August, September, start saying we're ready to go to production. And then we can start rolling people in. That didn't take very long to get to November as the earliest date I can imagine this working. And if anybody's done deadlines, you almost never hit one. Some as you're early, so don't get me wrong, some as you're early, and that's great but I'm probably going to be wrong in, on the late side. So I'm not expecting massive movement until 24 at this point, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. I think that makes sense. There's, there's, you know, we've seen some great, some great tractions at the tail end of last year and the beginning of this, how it rolls out the rest of the year is going to be very interesting to watch. I'm looking. Yeah. 
the main difference though, is once we get to the point where we start, I think those dominoes are faster than we've seen in the past, right? Cause you have care quality, you have work, people already used it all to their primary network exchange. Flipping that switch should be faster from a technical perspective. Policy-wise and whether any terms of TEFCA are actual blockades that we don't know about because providers haven't read it that carefully yet to say, oh, I didn't realize that was in there. I can't do that. That's an, I'll give you a concrete example. We saw recently, actually there are comments due today on a, sec, a security SOP that mandated a higher level of authentication. And I'm all for higher levels of authentication for systems that, that it work well for. But AAL2 is in this, and there are a fair amount of hospitals that I've seen personally that would find it nearly impossible to adopt that. And for good reason, take a, an ED physician that needs to go in and out of, or a clinician, we'll just broaden it to the entire staff of an ED. They go in and out of rooms and beds and have to log in and out of systems rapidly. It's dozens an hour. To do that, using AL2 that exists today, which is usually a two-factor, multi-factor, the like, may not work, right? It may not be tenable. So what CIOs have done is they've built other secure things that they've evaluated as being very secure, but it doesn't necessarily match an AL2 process, right? So it's like you, ex-physicians and clinicians on that floor shall have badges that are geo-locked in that area if the clip disconnects, the badge becomes useless. So it's reactivated again. They can do all this stuff to get fast badge access, but it doesn't mean it's AL2. So like, I can't participate because I have a department that doesn't work that way. So we got to fix that. Or NIST has to give us better guidance on what are the equivalents to AL2 that we can use. So like these details, I don't think the average provider practice has read the flow down so much that they would raise their hand and say, this is perfectly clean for me yet because they just haven't had a reason to do it. Once we build it and now it's an off offering, that's when they'll start. And it'd be maybe, I don't know what the right word, immature, I guess, from a reality perspective to think that they're reading that detail now. It's not ready yet. I wouldn't look as a CIO of an idea either. Really interesting example, something I had not personally thought of, but I'm sure those those edge cases and scenarios are going to pop up and navigating, seeing how the QHINs along with the RCE and ONC navigate those situations will be interesting. Yep. One thing I want to zoom in on for a second is these big tech companies moving into healthcare. When do you anticipate seeing one of these major players joining one of the national exchanges and particularly Commonwealth? Sooner than you think. They're already asking. You go down to the, the big guys, you know, that's Google, Amazon, Microsoft, you go down the list. There's concern about them arriving and for good reason, particularly ones that have a social media bent and everything on the politics attached to that aside. Yeah, some people were harmed by things they weren't expecting to be harmful. I think that's a le legitimate critique. And some had business lines in health that have dropped and come back. Many of the ones I just listed had direct patient access applications going back 10 years ago that fizzled and died, but they're returning with different products and different interface work to do. They're coming I think what's interesting is some of them are coming through connectors, so you don't realize they're arriving. I would be surprised if Health Gorilla is working with one of them and trying to figure out how to help them onboard in Tefka or Care Quality or Commonwealth or all three of those. And it's a little bit below the fold or a little bit underneath the hood because it's going to be Health Gorilla as an implementer or QN. And then you have to look at the rest of the list to figure out what's going on. They may not be primary participants at this point. You may see them as sub-participants on their other stuff. And I hope, I don't think that they're doing it because they're hiding or they think that they have to make sure the public doesn't see them. Because if you look carefully enough, 
And I do, I'm observant. I see healthcare that's full list. So it's not like it's hiding in plain sight. It's because they need different APIs and different ways to get on board to this stuff that they don't want to be a primary participant. They're not, they don't want the baggage of healthcare of the past. They want APIs that are modern and let something bridge them to the healthcare of the past that is also modernizing at the same time. Speed to access and moving forward. I'd be willing to bet that almost every implementer out there that's either going to be a QN or is already on care quality commons are already talking to these entities and they're not far behind hooking up. Interesting. Yeah. And it goes back to the build versus buy, right? Company size and revenue doesn't always dictate that decision. There could be various contributing factors that would lead one of these leading tech companies to go the buy route. Yeah. Or the rent route or the partner route really is the, <clears throat> what's interesting is there's mutual benefit to a two API companies that have unique data sets and methodologies and processes for access to that data may very well be better partying with each other. It's almost like going back to just primary economic theory of comparative advantage and who's better at what. And a lot of people don't appreciate this just because you're big doesn't mean that you don't recognize that someone else is better at something that you want to do. And in fact, some of them are better at recognizing that. They say, here's my niche. I'm good at rapid database responses, scalability, whatever. I'm not good at XYZ, healthcare analysis, parsing and deduplication, find a partner. And in the process, I may actually have a reverse partner on higher performing database and indexing technology that you didn't realize we could help you with. So there's compare, like they may wind up both selling a component of it to each other to the benefit of the marketplace. You find tech heavy, API heavy companies actually have that mindset as I'm going to build a mark, build a market for my stuff and other people's stuff. And shame on me if someone builds a better product. Sometimes shame, it's not shame on me because I decided not to build it ever. I was always going to buy someone else's to do this. I didn't lose. We both won. And I think that that's a mentality that some of us are not used to when you have a full buy mentality. That's not as pervasive as it was 10, 20 years ago with large conglomerates that wanted to have every product and every service. It's going to be an interesting thing to keep an eye on this over the next couple of years. Yeah. We got one minute left before we jump. Do you have any, any predictions for 2023 regarding data exchange and interoperability? I hate to be a boring prediction. I think we're going to see this year. I'm not going to say we're losing a technology cycle here because we're going to get to Tufka. You're going to see that build. You're going to see volumes continue to grow. What I'm hopeful to see, and there are signs of this, is that there is a greater push towards the need for data quality in the documents and fire data sets. And then we have an honest conversation. I think we're going to have a better honest conversation than we've ever seen in the history of health IT about fire is great and it is more discreet and that's great. Let's not repeat the sins of the past that we did in the documents. Like it's not going to fire is not nirvana without some controls to make sure that we don't repeat things like code set arguments and putting things in the wrong place. So I think this thing's going to, this year is got a pretty good chance at being, yes, increase in volume, yes, build Tefka but also a concerted effort on getting data quality to improve. I think 2024 is going to be a lot different on that. That's great. I can't thank you enough, Paul. I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your perspective. It was great getting to meet you last year at, at HIMSS, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again in person at events this year. Um, great. My pleasure. Thank you.